You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to talk with the British punk band Idols. But first, the story of Cream Magazine and music journalist Jan Uhelski. This August, Greg, a new documentary came out called Cream, America's Only Rock and Roll Magazine, and that inspired us to dive into the history of Cream and the impact its writing had on readers and the field of music criticism. For the entirety of its run, uh, which lasted from 1969 to 1989, Cream operated in the Detroit metropolitan area. The writers were a bunch of misfits and nerds, yeah, but yeah. Uh, most importantly, serious music fans uh, who cared about giving readers their genuine opinions on what albums to listen to and love and how to spend their money. So many great music writers worked at Cream, including Jim's hero, Lester Banks. That's right, Greg, but he was far from the only one. I even wrote a few things for Cream myself at the end of its run. You know, you had great artists like Patti Smith and Lenny Kay and Peter Lochner contributing to the magazine and some legendary names in criticism and journalism in the music field, Nick Toshes, Robert Criscow, as well as the people who were on staff at the magazine. It really felt like an egalitarian environment where rock stars, critics, and fans were one and the same. Another iconic Cream Magazine writer has been a friend of ours for many years, Jan Uhelski. Jan has uh, several decades of excellent music journalism under her belt and was an integral part of making this new documentary. Jan, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. I think this is my second time, and I'm so happy to be here because I'm an avid fan. <laughs> it's been ridiculously long, Jan, especially because you are one of my favorite people in the world, as you know. I want to know what Greg Cott thinks about the Cream documentary, but mostly we want to tell the story of Jan's incredible, inspiring career. Absolutely. And uh, Jan, I think what uh, is intriguing to me, you're such a, a young critic, pioneering critic, and here you come aboard what became one of the most iconic publications uh, of the last 50 years, uh, especially when we're talking about pop culture and rock music specifically. What was that like coming into Cream Magazine in its infancy? You started out soon after the magazine was formed, right? It started in March of, of 69, and I got there officially in October of 70. But any road I could get in there, I was going to take. And it all began because I was a Coca-Cola girl at the Grandy Ballroom, which is a ballroom <laughs> like the Fillmore. And the thing that was really important about that job was it was the heyday of LSD. So we would pour out soda, and my primary job was to make sure no one dosed it. So, which, which, which yes. happened all the time. Now, we are talking Detroit, and, uh, you know, we are talking the, the famous venue that gave birth to the MC5. Then the Stooges would play there, Bob Seger, a, a really iconic rock venue, and you're selling Coke, a cola. <laughs> Coca-Cola, yes. Yeah, I'm selling Coca-Cola. I'm bringing little plastic cups of Coca-Cola to the Velvet Underground, high point of my Coca-Cola career. Wow. But what was important was right next to the bar was a little kiosk where they sold cream magazines. Barry Kramer, the publisher, also had a head shop and a record store. So every weekend they would haul all of their goods, which included cream magazine. So in my innocence, I would give them free sodas and I'd go, 
okay, if I give you this free orange pop or I give you this Coca-Cola, can I write for cream? Oh yeah, no problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) For free. They they neglected to tell you that. Yeah. So um, that was my first little tentacle into their world. And then the second one was I started going out with the art director. So he started bringing me to Cream Magazine, and this was like early 1970. So while I was there, the publisher, Barry Kramer, they were always strapped for cash. In fact, after the first three issues, they had to suspend publication because they didn't have money for the printer or any circulation or anything. And I said, I've got this great idea. I could make some T-shirts. I have a friend whose dad is a printer. I can sell them. I won't take a cut. And even better, I've got a teenage sister who will go door to door and sell them. (laughs) (laughs) So a little band of, well, they were in junior high. They were 11. I lied about the age. They went door to door and they sold a tremendous amount of cream t-shirts. There's a lot of originals out there. The ones that you see on eBay are actually ones Joanne Uhelski sold. And um, I went back to Barry and I said, okay, can I have a job? And he goes, yeah, you can be the subscription kid. So all of my great entrepreneurial efforts landed me in the business part of cream. It was unique because nobody else had a title. Nobody was editor. Nobody was editor-in-chief. Nobody was publisher. This was egalitarian magazine of the people. We are the, the people's... Rock and roll is the people's culture. We are the people's magazine. So only you, you had a title. And I was probably the youngest person there. It was more like people would come up into the office all the time, as in the hoi polloi, like readers... And, and they would want to argue with us about a certain record. Or they had gotten some missive in their dream, so they wanted to discuss it. That happened all the time. It was just a free-for-all. It was one of those things people asked me if I knew we were making history. I knew we were doing something different because those were those polarizing times where it was us and them, straights and heads. It was Ford and Chevy. It was Rolling Stone and Cream. It was a this and that world. And I knew that we were a subset of people that had no place else to go and had no other voice. And we were, we were their voice and we were their ears and we were actually just stand-ins for all the people who, who read us. So there, there's an ethos there. There's sort of a culture. Uh, was that in place when you got there? And what's your sense of why that, why that happened? Was it strictly an accident or was there a vision behind it? I think that there was a vision. I really do think, much like Metallica in later years, is that we were outcasts. We weren't necessarily the popular kids. We were more the, the nerds or the, and if we were popular, it was popular for being odd. Like we're all a little off, a little odd, a little like didn't fit into like normal mainstream society or mainstream teenagehood. So I think it was this lightning rod for the rest of us. I interviewed a, a woman, Sandra Stretke. She's in the movie, she's Barry Kramer's first assistant. And she said, Cream is a lot like Santa Fe. When people moved to Santa Fe, they had the saying, you don't choose Santa Fe, New Mexico. Santa Fe chooses you. Well, the same thing about Cream. A lot of people went through those doors wanting to work for Cream, and it just wasn't going to work. It's like It was obvious from the minute you walked through there whether you belonged or you didn't belong and you wanted to stay, despite the fact we only got paid in those early years about half the time. I can't wait another second. Your first day at work, you're one of two hires. Who's the other one? Lester Bangs, yes. 
He's wearing a brown suit because he's got a job, right? They said he looked like the shoe salesman he had been when he was working in tiny El Cajon, the suburb of, of San Diego. You must have thought, who is this geek? I mean, he looked like a substitute teacher. He had a, a, a suitcase. And um, Roberta Kruger, who was also there, reminded me of this just yesterday, that he had a rope tied around his suitcase because he stuck so much stuff in it. <laughs> That's hilarious. I know, he's wearing a three-piece three piece suit with a vest, all buttoned up, shoes shined. It was, he wanted to make an impression. And I just thought, oh my God, we've hired a civilian. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't think he was going to make it. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Actually, people say they weren't sure he was going to make it. Like Dave Marsh um, told me recently that he didn't think that Lester would last. So um, I think the funny part is Lester outlasted Dave Marsh. So that, <laughs> yeah. that, that was the funny part. And becomes, and becomes known as, as sort of uh, the soul of the magazine, which is unjust in a way, because I made the point in The New Yorker uh, when I reviewed the film and wrote about those days. It was... From the beginning, if the New Yorker had the famous Algonquin roundtable, Dorothy Parker and Robert Benchley, Cream had the low-rent Algonquin card table, <laughs> right? Because Robbie Krueger, brilliant writer, funny, mainly writing about film, you uh, writing about everything, Lester, Dave Marsh, in the years to come, it was always a shifting ensemble of incredibly talented people with very strong voices who were allowed, Nick Tasha's was a contributor, so was Patti Smith, um, allowed to, in Nick's words, make a mess on the page. Mm -hmm. Have fun. You want to put makeup on and get on stage with uh, Kiss? Go for it, Jan. Well, we didn't have any trouble selling it. Like, another thing people tend to want to ask is, did you have to fight for those stories? It's like, no. I mean, there was no fighting. You just, you had a great idea. You were passionate about it. And light bulb went off somewhere in the middle of the night. And you told everybody else. And I go, yeah, you have to write it. I mean, how I actually got Kiss into the book was nobody wanted to write about him. And I had to make a hard case and actually promise that I would write about them. And I created a comic strip. Not that I was such a crazy fan of their music. It was one of those, you know, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time it's come. And that's what I thought about Kiss. And then I got such great license that they actually let me on stage with them, which I still think they were just out of their minds to say yes. You know? <laughs> and they know it now. They don't even like the fact that I was ever on, on stage with them. When we interviewed them for the documentary, they're like, yeah, she was up there. You know? Yeah. <laughs> So you're like, okay, first-person experiential journalism. Kiss is a comic book. What is it like to be a character in a comic book? Yeah, uh, you know what was funny, and this only struck me about two months ago, is I went on stage with them, and I am like all decked out, and I realized that over all these years, and that happened in 1975, not a single person in that audience ever noticed. It wasn't in the, the reviews of that show. <laughs> it was like I staged a moonwalk. Like yeah. nobody knows that I was really on stage except that I came back from the front with the story of what it was like to put makeup on with, with four guys, you know, and have them 
insult me because I didn't know how to do it as skillfully as they did. <laughs> it, it was to me, it was crazy that no one noticed. But see, that's the brilliance of that piece, Jan. If cream was about anybody can do it, right? That piece uh, is very funny and it's very personal about the makeup tips they're giving you, right? But it also underscores that uh, uh, rock and roll is mythology, right? Lester said famously, in rock and roll, there are no facts. There are only myths. So you were in the right makeup. You were on stage. Therefore, you were Kiss. That's right. I was Kiss. And I remain Kissette to this day. (laughs) (laughs) It's fascinating for people to realize this now, but the staff of Cream in general and the ethos of Cream sort of had this very complicated relationships with the people that they were writing about in that you were extremely critical of them you are satirizing them and at the same time loving them. How did that sort of come about and how did you get away with it? How did they let you keep writing about them because they knew they were going to get harpooned sooner or later, right? (laughs) I think we always were slaves to the truth and that actually leads into the rock stars are not our friends because if you're a writer, you want different things than what, what the rock star wants. You want to tell the truth or you want to be that conduit for fans. Like you were there as the representative of fans and you want to tell them the truth because you don't want them spending their allowance on something really lousy like an Ace album or, you know, or, or, or like a Joy of Cooking album or even like a Krabby Appleton album. James Taylor, marked yeah. for death, yeah. said Lester. Exactly. So, so that was always a big part of who we were. We didn't want kids wasting their money because we're from a blue-collar town, and you didn't have a lot of money to throw around. Uh-huh. And, and the, they did know what they were getting into. We once went to a press party, party for Slade, and um, Lester incited a food fight. Cool. And... I thought it just went there like that. I thought that was it. It was a it was a moment. We have photographs of it. It was actually a, one of those nights you always remember. And again, working on the movie, I unearthed a Slade review he wrote, and he wrote about the food fight. You know, so somehow whoever won the food fight really translated in how good the album was. He thought it was good. But it was like, it was like, I think there were devices that we created in order to talk about bands. And it was, I think that at that time, not just us, but that whole literati, New Yorkers of, you know, Nora Ephron too, that you were as big a character in the story as the person you were writing about. So um, I think that we always thought we were no different than the people we were writing about either. I mean, we, we might have been our fans, which we were, and our readers, but we were actually the rock stars as well. Maybe with the exception of Tiny Tim and, and um, Mick Jagger, I think that rock stars are just like us. <laughs> When we return, we continue our conversation with Jan by talking about what it was like to be one of the few female music journalists in the 70s and a conversation with UK punk band Idols. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago and distributed nationally by PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week we're talking all things Cream Magazine with our friend Jan Uhelski. 
Jan was a writer for Cream in the early days, beginning in 1970, and I wanted to know what it was like to be one of the very few female rock critics in the field, and how she felt about the edgy and sometimes misogynistic humor that was prevalent at Cream at the time. It's like the Roger Rabbit quote, it's not a joke unless it's funny, and anytime we use sex or like we had a lot of boob jokes, you know, like, like here's Wendy Williams and her three friends, you know, she'd be holding a basketball and then, you know, in a yeah. breath. <laughs> of the plasmatics. I think for me is I felt sometimes like a stealth operator. I didn't want to be branded a woman. I mean, my name is pretty androgynous as, as it is. But the fact is, is I wanted to work. I was home. I knew that this is where I wanted to be. And I wasn't going to get prissy and go, oh, that's just not politically correct, because there was not politically correct then. We were always going for jokes, no matter where the jokes were. I don't think that it's much like, I know I have a quote in the movie where I said, if we were politically correct, then 60% of the stuff would not have been in the magazine. I don't think it's that high, but we were always going for the laughs, smart laughs, not cheap laughs. Maybe the boob jokes were cheap laughs, but they were always funny. I mean, that's the one thing that was reliable about Cream. Everything on there was pretty timelessly funny. It really was more the descendant of Mad Magazine than anything. Oh, I don't know. If there weren't brilliant ideas, as I said, Jan, about your kiss piece, uh, if there weren't brilliant ideas at the heart of it, they may have been hidden under the joke. Um, but also, you're being nice to Greg. I've known you much longer. Uh, you know, you, you, you let him get away with that question. You know, I think um, of the... The five great women writers I've known in my life and had personal connections to, uh, my thinking has been shaped more by you than anybody. And what you always said to me is, I am not a pioneering female rock critic. I'm a great rock critic, period. Mm -hmm. You know, and I was like, yeah, right. But I have used a misogynist heavy metal type, use their body weight against them because they wouldn't expect a woman who would come in a girl then, a late teenager, who would know anything about music. So they would really, you know, ask me, like when I would ask them a question, they would just look blank and I would really use that that point of view to just get them later on. You know, the, I would always get the last word because I was writing it. And did I dress up to go, yeah, I put on like tight jeans and tall boots and I was using every everything in my arsenal, but I never played that, I did that more as a defense, as protective armor, because I know I've told you this story before, Jim, it's like, I mean, going into interview Rick Wakeman and he answers the door in a towel, you know, and he won't put clothes on, you know, like, like, could you please put clothes on? No. And, um, you know, things like that happened a lot. Well, you were on the plane with Led Zeppelin, right? Writing for Cream. You know, I mean, to have survived being on the plane, a few times. <laughs> it's like the press were the enemy. Largely, they ignored me. They weren't all that nice to me, you know? I mean, I really had to hone my observational skills, especially in that second tour I was on where Jimmy Page wouldn't speak to me until the afternoon that I was going home and it was a cover story, you know? And, and when I talked to him, I had to speak to him through an interpreter. <laughs> <laughs> That is so against the cream ethos that we are all one, rock star and writer and fan. I have to say it started out that way. 
it really did start out that way because there was no corporate rock. No one was making big money on rock and roll in those days, 1969. You know, it's like you haven't even had Altamont. Yeah, there are a few bands that you know you're not like because they live in Valhalla. But I just never thought that they were any different. I think that that's, again, something characteristically Detroit. You know, we don't really like to put people on pedestals. We're really happy to drag them off pedestals. <laughs> that, that is the core of what Cream was. And you got, a, you got a lot of feedback on that. Joan Jett uh, famously writing a letter in and saying she's going to kill that guy who uh, wrote that nasty review. And it was a nasty review. So you had this dialogue going with the artist, which to me is what it's all about. You are starting a conversation when you're writing criticism. And that, that ideal, I think, is, has really lasted the, the generations. And at the time, it must have been fun but was it daunting also to get that sort of instant feedback like hey you wrote that nasty thing i'm gonna go come and get you i'm gonna find you you know was was there an intimidation factor at all you know that hasn't haven't hasn't even changed like i was thinking about that too i wrote something about widespread panic and damn if i didn't walk into a hotel lobby in my hometown and see the lead singer you know john bell wanting to talk to me about what I wrote. Like, I think there's always repercussions. I think you always have to write something with such total blunt honesty and just suffer the consequences because nobody's going to be happy if you're not flattering them. Or maybe that's too strong a way to look at it. But you have to be always prepared to defend what you write or just stand by it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that... um, I, I wasn't even surprised, like Ted Nugent wrote us a couple of slam letters. I mean, Thurston Moore before it was Thurston Moore wrote that. But again, going through the archives, looking, looking at the letter sections just to prepare for the ones I was going to choose for the documentary, there were so many artists who wrote back to us all the time. John Lennon and Yoko wrote. You know, it, it was like... I don't know. There's sometimes I feel like I was in a bubble or maybe we all were and we didn't really think the things that happened were that odd. I mean, everyone seems to react to this story about when I was in the editorial office and Iggy Pop came in to see Lester and the publisher Barry Kramer is mad because Iggy doesn't say hello to him and, and you know, dumps a full trash can over his head. And, you know, when I even see that and I, I see it in, in a theater and people just roar with that and I keep going, yeah, that was just another day at the office. I mean, I'm not jaundiced or I'm not humble bragging or anything. It's just, it was really, that was what it was. We lived in a rock culture. We, we lived high drama. We really didn't have normal lives. I mean, we didn't start work till like 12 o'clock. We left the office if we left at all in the morning i mean it was like we were on the road all the time except that we were in birmingham michigan you know like it was we, we lived on barbecue and dairy queen you know we were like like trashy trashy like bass players you know what uh what's your sense of the, i mean the magazine limped to a close uh in 1989 you know the golden years were in the 70s the 80s were tough it finally closed shop in 89 now there's the documentary um and there seems to be, um, it seems to be one of those cultural artifacts that still seems cool to a lot of people. Uh, why do you think that is? I think it's valid and good for maybe five more years till 86 when there's the Martino, Bill Holtchip, Jay Kordash, Rick Johnson um, conglomerate of people. They're really talented. They are the boys club. It was more of a, you know, 
male female kind of energy like the Fleetwood Mac of rock magazines like the, in the first eras but by the time they have it it's like locker room humor it's it's like boy humor it's it's not as sex sexist or sexual as the earlier cream but it's it's very boy but it's really funny and i remember jim you moderated a panel that i was on at south by southwest where dave marsh told bill holship that that his era ruined our cream magazine like they they couldn't hold the candle to um what the early cream was and you know i found with evidence that's not true i mean no it's not i mean jay cordash's um story about about rush is like a shining example and there's so much dave DiMartino on with on captain beefheart rick johnson was hysterically funny you know i think cream was great until the day it died i wrote two reviews i wrote two rocco ramas i one was by this band nobody cared about jesus and mary chain you know i, I think i got a 50 dollar check and i was you know that's i can retire now <laughs> yeah they, they were the one paragraph record review and so for some people it never got better than cream and for other people like you, um, you know, uh, it never stopped and you carried that forward. Yeah. Well, you know, there weren't a lot of people who left cream that became civilians. You know, most of us did not go work in a furniture factory or, mm-hmm. or you know, become waitresses. We really stayed in. It, it really was. I mean, if it's cream chose you or rock writing chose you, I mean, it, it's calling it a calling is a little too you know, uppity and, and <laughs> uncream like uncream like, but you know, once you're in, you're in, it's in your blood. Like, why would I want to do anything else? They thought the people at cream that making music and writing about music was a moral duty, a moral task. And you still have that today, which is so inspiring to me always. The, the fact is, is I always think that musicians brains are wired differently than the rest of us. Normal people quote-unquote normal people and Lester had this quote and I'm gonna read it because I I have it taped on my computer that's how important this quote has been for me for years it says don't ask me why I obsessively look to rock and roll bands for some kind of model for a better society I guess it's just that I glimpsed something beautiful in a flash bulb moment once and perhaps mistaking it for prophecy have been seeking its fulfillment ever since yeah. I think that there's something prophetic about the lyrics or what you're hearing in music. There's something encoded from the beyond, something metaphysical, and it's passed through a musician. And for me, it's a way to live. It's, there's been a lot of wisdom and lyrics that have saved my life, you know, healed a broken heart, made me think in a different way. And I'm not the only one. There are so many of us that feel that way. You know, to this day, like I'm the same person at age 12 at the kitchen table trying to transcribe all the Beatle records lyrics <laughs> when it was released. Like, I'm still that person. So why would I not still do this? Jan Uhelski, super heroine. What a treat to have you on Sound Opinions. Jan, you know we love you, right? I love you too. All right. You will not catch me staring at the sun. Not sucking on a dumb dumb, not turning round to run. No hallelujahs and no kingdom comes. So you will not catch me staring at the sun. That is a little bit of grounds by idols from their third album, Ultra Mono. 
Since 2017, the consensus has grown, certainly with you and I, Greg, that Idols are one of the best rock bands in the world. The group, which includes Mark Bowen, Lee Kiernan, Adam Devonshire, John Beavis, and our guest today, vocalist Joe Talbot, are overt in their intention to use the music to make the world a better place. But I read that line we just heard from Joe Talbot about not staring at the sun as a way to distinguish himself from fellow singer-activist Bono. You know, Bono really thinks music and Bono can save the world. What Idols thinks is that by inspiring us, by giving us a soundtrack to march, to fight, to think, we can change the world. We are speaking with Joe Talbot of Idols. Joe, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks very much. How are you? We're awesome. And uh, we're loving the idea of having Idols on the show. We have been trying to nail down this interview for a couple of years. Yeah. Busy band. <laughs> yeah. And we're happy to have you uh, now on the third album, Ultramano, just came out. Yeah. Um, the arc of this band has been amazing since 2017, those three albums. But I know this has been a slow, steady progression for you guys, too. It, it's not like you're not an overnight success story. What keeps a band going? Because there obviously weren't a ton of accolades for the first, you know, half of the band's career. And you and you kept climbing and here you are. What what sort of sustained you during those years? Um, I want and I love for music. And I, it's, it's everything to me. It's everything to us. I think creating stuff, it's just an imprint for you as it is for your audience. Like there's no disillusions of grandeur with me. I am only where I am right now because of our audience, not because of me. But I made the music and the lyrics. I was feeling those things and I didn't know how to, which is why I was in a very cyclical spiral of abuse, self-abuse and outward abuse. I was not a very nice person to be around. And then I started putting things out in the world and being able to see it. For instance, a nice analogy for life is public speaking. If you've never done any public speaking, the first time you do public speaking, it's terrifying. But if you open up by talking about how nervous you are, there's an alleviation there. You, you've reflected on it in front of your audience. You tell them you're nervous, and then suddenly the nervousness dissipates. Because they can all relate. Exactly. And then you feel part of the audience. You feel a connection. And for me, I, I needed to put my feelings and my mm. turmoil out there in order to basically forgive myself and be productive at the same time. Uh, well, when was that period of difficulty, Joe, that you first turned to making music? Was that your early 20s or About 11 o'clock this morning. <laughs> my mum had a stroke, a major stroke. She was paralysed down the right side. She couldn't talk. That happened when I was 16. And then maybe for... 10 years, I felt sorry for myself and I went through spirals of psychosis and abuse and I was very lost. And then music came into my life when I started DJing at about 23. I realised how much music had played a part in my life when I started DJing because I realised how much 
music I was aware of and how much music, more importantly, I was in love with. And um, the rest is history. Obviously, along the way, self-loathing, self-deprecation, self-doubt more than anything made me listen to critics and listen to praise. As soon as I... This is what Ultramono, our last album, is about. It's about building something beyond that that is truly for yourself. In order to have true catharsis, you eradicate any motives of trying to please or appease what people think of you and instead just let things out. I want to be loved Everybody does Well, let, let me ask you about the DJ thing before we get away from it because there oh, yeah. was an obnoxious attitude in DJ culture for a good 10 or 15 years straight. <laughs> you know, that, that, that DJing and, and electronic music was the future. And anybody picking up one of those pieces of wood with six strings, you are a Luddite. You know, and here you are leading this ferocious and wonderful guitar band. You know, I know everybody in the group despises genre, but there are guitars. I think we can at least say a guitar band, a band with guitars. And drums and bass. Yes, yeah. Just just for conversation purposes. We don't hate genre. My point has always been that if you allow people to categorise what you do, you disallow yourself to be free of category. That's my point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we are definitely in the echelons of rock and roll, punk, post-punk, all those things. To have a conversation about music without using genre, can you imagine? It'd be crippling. It's hard to talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really important linguistic tool to talk about music using genre. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're being genreist, like all folk bands are the same or whatever. You know, it's just, um, God, can you imagine if that became a, a fascist movement? Genreism. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Just like loads of garage rockers going out and beating folk artists on the street. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that would be quite something. That would be the last uh, frontier, I think, for for music. (laughs) But 2020, it wouldn't surprise me. Do you know what I mean? No, it's exactly. Everything else is collapsing. Why not that too? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so like the Strokes came along and introduced people like me who only listened to hip hop to rock and roll. And they were a magic band. They were very cool and they had great songs. But the thing is, what happened is it changed the way everyone dressed and the way everyone thought about music and the way everyone played music. Suddenly, there were a lot of dudes who threw away their bootcut jeans and were getting skinny 70s-esque jeans, trying to fit in their <laughs> mum's hipster jeans and borrowing their dad's Chuck Taylors. And not moving on stage. Exactly. Um, and looking bored. And they just got to a point where I missed that sense of danger that sense of vibrance and life in, in live music. And I wanted to inject it into that gap and start a band. Well, we were watching a band at this, this festival. It's a bit like South by Southwest in London called Camden Crawl. We watched this band at a pub called The World's End. I won't name them because I don't like saying negative stuff about people publicly unless it's to stop oppression, really. But they were so boring and bored. You know, they didn't look like they enjoyed it one bit. And I knew then Mm. I wanted to start a band and show everyone just how beautiful it is and how privileged it is to be able to be on a stage where everyone's paying attention to what you're doing. It's just... 
the most magical thing. So I just told Dad, I was like, Dad, we're going. And he was like, why? And I was like, we're going to start a band. <laughs> right then and there. Right then and there. That, that, that's the great. world's end. And then that, that was it. The rest was um, really terrible history. Like, we were awful <laughs> for about six years. But we gave ourselves the room to be terrible. Collectively, it was a really beautiful experience, like learning music. What we injected into guitar music or rock and roll was a passion for a lot of other genres and trying to inject that into it, like hip hop and jungle and techno and 50s pop music and soul. And like, we hope that you can hear those things in it. And I think that's, it's a cosmopolitan way, right? Is mm -hmm. to accept difference and, and in fact, go beyond acceptance and celebrate whatever we have left of life, which is probably mm -hmm. not a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. <Yeah>. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, when you came out with the first Idols record, uh, Brutalism, 2017, and then Joy as an act of resistance soon after, Joe, I thought there is a voice built for rage and confrontation. Yeah. And yet at the same time, you were vulnerable. There was a sense of empathy uh, yeah. in that voice. And you go, those two things don't normally go together, but you found a way to, to express those two things almost simultaneously in a lot of your songs. Was that there at the beginning or was that something that you had to get to as a human being and then as a, you know, the singer in a, in a rock band? Yeah. It was a very considered dichotomy, yes. I had no idea how to sing. I had no idea how to perform. I had no idea how to write a song. So I had a lot of learning to do and a lot of whiskey to drink. So <laughs> it was like this mess for years and years of me trying to keep up with myself. It's that idea of like, I was trying out lots of different voices. I was singing like Orlando from the Maccabees, or, or trying to, I couldn't sing like him at all. Uh, and then singing like Marky Smith and then singing like this and singing like this. And that's that's what you do when you learn, right? You you only know what you know, right? You learn from other from experience. And I was quickly succeeding and failing at everyone else's voice until I realized <laughs> Why would I try and sing like anyone else? It's just suddenly I put on my own shoes and they fit weirdly. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. to do that is confidence. And that's what Ultra Mono, our latest album, is all about. It's really to empathise with yourself, is to give yourself enough confidence to just be mm. and not worry about all those external voices, but also have the confidence to listen to your adversaries and those external voices and not be affected by them enough that you change your own voice. I wanted to ask you about the uh, artistic kinship and friendship you share with Jenny Beth 
formerly of Savages, now solo artists, because it seems like uh, uh, philosophically you're on the same page. Of course, you're on her new album. She uh, is, it appears on Idol's album. It seems like there's a real connection there. Make no mistake, it's all about the money. She's a massive racist. <laughs> <laughs> They are an amazing artist. Jenny Beth is incredible, a powerful figure. And I learned a lot from Jenny Beth's performance live. It's like watching Nick Cave, you know? Jenny Beth, mm-hmm. Nick Cave, Nadine Shah, Anna Calvi. Mm-hmm. There's certain artists that carry a macabre, sinister force that is also welcoming. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you're enthralled by their danger. It's commitment. You're putting 110% of yourself on that stage. Yeah. And you do that as well. And here we are in this dreadful time where you can't do that. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it goes from 190 shows or something, 200 last year, right? Yeah, to, yeah. To zero in 2020, you know? It's, yeah, that's got to be mean, a shot. Do you know what? Everyone needed a break. From my, it's a lot of shows, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. Like, yeah, I, d- I, d- I don't think it matters really whether we play or not right now. I think there's more important things to worry about. Sure. What we are doing is we're, we're definitely acknowledging our privilege. We're at the point of gratitude because we are lucky. We're the lucky few. I mean, our privilege is our audience, you know, and we're, we're going to give them as much as we can. In a, in a beautiful way as possible. You know, Greg and I feel the same way about this radio show podcast. You're right. People are literally dying uh, and suffering uh, beyond uh, imagination right now. And here we are talking about art. But I think, you know, art is what will get us through. There's no point in downplaying how important creative thinking is, how scared it makes the oppressive governments. And the reason for that is it, it gives you a sense of freedom that doesn't rely on monetary wants or need it just makes you feel connected to a world so yes in these times of turmoil if you can pick up your tools and make beautiful art for people to use as a sounding board escape Mm. punch bag whatever it is they need music and art is an important thing especially in times of turmoil When we come back, we'll talk more with Joe Talbot of the British rock band Idols. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago, distributed nationally by PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are talking with Joe Talbot, lead vocalist of the British punk band Idols. You know, the day we interviewed Joe was the one-year anniversary of Daniel Johnston's death that uh, singer-songwriter much loved by a devoted following. But it wasn't the only reason he came up in our conversation. This new album, Ultramano, it builds to that song, Danka. And quoting that Daniel Johnston uh, lyric, true love will find you in the end.
Again, something that you wouldn't expect to be coming from the lips of a person who looks like that and sings like that. Yeah. And, th- and there it is, you know, it's kind of like you're ripping your heart open and showing it to the world, you know? Yeah. Uh, and as, as Daniel Johnston did. True love will find you in the end. You'll find out just who was your friend. In some way, when you were talking about Jenny Beth and Nick Cave, it's almost like Daniel is like the 180-degree polar opposite. You know, it's like he's not theatrical in any sense, right? I mean, it's just kind of like, it's just vulnerability. That That's all it is. It's not an act at all. Exactly, yeah. I couldn't have put it better myself. I, actually, I can. I'll try. Um, <laughs> no, no. We're counting on that, Joe. No, 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 no. I'm only joking. No, it, it, what I mean is, is exactly right. It's a vulnerability. Like one of the things that like Daniel Johnston has is is both a gift and a curse. As I said it earlier today, actually, it's like like he was obviously suffering greatly with mental health issues, but at the same time, his naivety and his vulnerability was absolutely catastrophically moving as a human being. There, he is unquestionably bare on those songs. One of the things that I have tried to do with, with my lyrics is that sense of vulnerability. It disarms people. If you make yourself vulnerable, it's a bartering tool. It's saying, look, I'm not on the attack. Here's, here's me mm. open. Come in. Welcome. Let's have a conversation. It's not always easy being vulnerable and you don't always get the results you want. But you know what? You'll find peace that way. And I just think with the violence of our tone, it's important to to speak of vulnerability with a violent tone because Mm. there's nothing meek or weak or soft about vulnerability. Vulnerability is a strength. And it's a bold move. I'm a real boy, boy, and I cry. I love myself, and I want to try. This is why you never see your father cry. It's a moving gesture to make yourself vulnerable and just mm-hmm. to use joy as an act of resistance. Mm-hmm. All right, but let me let me play devil's advocate, Joe. Uh, the world sometimes claps back in a negative way. One of the distressing things about the many Daniel Johnston shows I saw was people cheering him to sometimes melt down on stage. He could be mercurial. He could have fits of anger and, and depression and just freakouts, right? Mm-hmm. And there were people who did that hoping he would go off the rails. In Idol's case, you know, I have all these people saying, these guys are talking a good game, but they're not authentic. They're not real, man. They're not working class. They don't, what are they doing to fight oppression? It is hard to stay vulnerable as an artist in the face of... Cynicism. Cynicism, an awful force in the world. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, those hypothetical we were just talking about are right. We're not working class. We are middle class. Well, actually, that's not true. Three of us are middle class. Two are working class. But neither is a validity thing. You know, my lyrics around empathy, compassion, addiction, grief, loss, anything that I talk about is for me 
and my existential growth. It then becomes the audiences, they own it, they regurgitate it, and they tell me what it means, which mm. is fine. I mean, authenticity, I, I believe me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think anybody who's seen Idols Live has to say. believe. Like, same with Savages, same with Iggy Pop, yeah. right? You know, or Nick Cave. Yeah, I mean, there's a real easy thing to happen with our music which is that people think that I'm virtue signaling or judging people for not living their life like I live my life. Or, I mean, I don't know how to make this clearer. I was a piece of shit when I was younger. And I am out of that now. And I have a lot of shame and regret. And I'm progressing. And I want to progress as a father and a musician. But what I talk about is imperfection and the celebration of imperfection and the celebration of difference through empathy, mm. love, and a want for an egalitarian future. That is to say, as a middle-class man with more money than some, I'm happy to share it if my government stops spending it on killing brown people. Mm-hmm. That's not a class thing. That's just me not wanting my government to spend my taxes on murdering brown children or your government to stop spending their money on murdering brown children. An egalitarian want for a future where everyone has equal opportunity for an education, for jobs, for healthcare. It's just things that I'm concerned about. And like, if some, every now and again, someone turns around and says, you don't know what suffering is, you're middle class. Let them, you know, let them. Mm -hmm. But I go to bed at night, every night at peace, with what I've done, because I'm not lying. We have been talking to Joe Talbot, the vocalist of Idols. The new album is Ultramano. What a, Joe, we could just talk to you for hours, man. Yeah, I've, I've had a day of interviews, and <laughs> I've really enjoyed this. Genuinely, thank you. Well, thank you for coming on Sound Opinions. Yeah, good vibes. Do you have any thoughts on Idols? Leave us a comment on Facebook or Twitter and let us know. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have to catch up with a lot of new music that has come out in recent weeks, including the new albums from Lydia Lovelace and Disclosure. Good times. Download the Sound Opinions podcast wherever you get such thingies. Thanks, as always, to our supporters on Patreon. On Patreon, you can find an uncensored version of our conversation with Joe. He was in a cussing mood when we chatted. Sound Opinions was, as always, produced by Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne. 